You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. Well, it's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles or your device and turn to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Old Testament. So you just begin right here towards the front, Genesis, Exodus, and you'll find where we're going to start our new series today. And really, it's we're going to be in the book of Exodus for a while. And not only because Exodus is a giant book, uh, but because Exodus is vital to the history of redemption. And I thought after spending so many weeks in Galatians where we see Paul is, atta- is attacking a misuse of the law and how the law is being abused, that it would be good for us to go and look at the law, go and look at Exodus there in the heart of the Torah and see how is Exodus supposed to be used rightly. And Exodus is filled with famous scenes. If you grew up in church, you remember them. Or if you've seen The Prince of Egypt or any other film based off of the Exodus, you're somewhat familiar with these epic moments, and they're huge. Moses and God speaking, and God speaking from a burning bush that's not being consumed as he talks with Moses. You have Moses confronting Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the world at this time. You have the plagues. You have the actual exodus out of Egypt and the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments and Mount Sinai and manna, God giving them bread from the sky and the ground and you've got the golden calf. I mean, you have all these things happening in the book of Exodus. But what I hope you'll see is more than all of these famous scenes. I hope you'll see that Exodus is the redemption of God's people for himself. That really is the mega theme of this book being redeemed for God. The people are set free from Egypt, not just to go about and do whatever they want, but to belong to God, to be his. And that's why Christ redeems you. So that you would be saved by Christ and belong to Christ, to be his. And that's where Exodus begins to set the stage for us today. The plight of God's people and ours too. So as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And no, we're not going to read the whole book this morning like we've done in Galatians and Hebrews. So if you didn't wear your standing shoes, you're okay. 1 through 14 is what we'll read this morning. And our brother Moses tells us by the Holy Spirit when he wrote, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly and multiplied and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. When war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. 
They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now as we look at the beginning of the Exodus. Some of us right now are in oppression and slavery and need deliverance. Would you set some free from their oppression, slavery, and sin and bring them into the kingdom? And Father, help us now as we look at the story of your people, our story, where we learn to trust you again. And it's in your mighty name we pray, King Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You may have seen that the new mega superhero movie, Avengers Infinity War, came out, and it's packed with superheroes. But if you aren't that familiar with some of the backstories and previous, no, no, no spoilers or anything this morning is going to happen. You're good, Ben. No, no worries. If you're not familiar with these stories, the backstories in previous movies, you could be totally lost. I mean, imagine not seeing any of those movies and walking into Infinity War. It's probably a lot like my mother would walk in. I could just imagine us sitting there and her going, why is a robot man flying around? And with a glowing triangle in his chest, who is this guy? It's Iron Man. It's not Robot Man. Iron Man. When did the Jolly Green Giant turn into the Angry Green Giant? What happened? Mom, it's the Hulk. It's not the Jolly Green Giant. This is different. Why is the guy from Parks and Rec and Jurassic World in the Lego movie a superhero now? What happened? Like, Mom, it's... if you don't know all of the other movies and backstories, you're lost. You, the point is you need context. You need background. And you can't just dive into the book of Exodus and not have any background, any context, because Moses, who writes this book, assumes that his audience, assumes us, that we are familiar with Genesis and know what's going on in the timeline. In the same way that you wouldn't start with Infinity War or you wouldn't start with page 78 of book three of Harry Potter, you start at the beginning. You've got to know the whole story. So we're going to work our way back because Moses kind of sets us up to work our way back into Genesis. So let's look at verse one. We have to get the lay of the land before we can actually go through the book. So verse one, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So th- this is the tribe. These are the patriarchs. These are the people. Each came with his family. And you have all of these names listed. But look at verse five. These are the people who came to Egypt, these big figures. But verse five is huge. Joseph at the end was already in Egypt. Okay, how does that happen? How do all these guys come to Egypt and Joseph is already there? Well, back in Genesis, what you have is you have these brothers and Joseph living and they're really jealous of Joseph, his brothers. They can't stand him. So they faked his death and sold him into slavery. I mean, you thought your siblings had drama and your family had drama. This is insane. This is too much for reality TV in America. They sell their brother into slavery, fake his death, profit off of him. But by God's providence and by God's power, Joseph goes from being in prison and being a slave to then serving at the right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. 
And Joseph's wisdom provided by God saves Egypt and saves the surrounding nations when a famine hits. And Joseph has these visions and these dreams. Pharaoh has these visions and and Joseph interprets them and says, we got to store up food because a famine is coming. And he does. And this is how Joseph's brothers get to Egypt. They hear there's a ton of food in Egypt. Let's go. They arrive in Egypt. Joseph sees his brothers and he can't believe it. They don't recognize him because He's, he was a little boy when they sold him. Now he's a man and they, he, they see each other. Joseph weeps, they confront, they reconcile. And Pharaoh says, all of your family, bring them. Bring them to Egypt. They can live here because Joseph, you have been key to Egypt. Bring your family. That's how, they, how Joseph got to Egypt. That's how Jacob and his family gets to Egypt. And you can look, if you have a physical Bible, it's super easy to do. Just look at one page over. The last two words in Genesis are what? In Egypt. That is meant to be kind of an ellipsis, a to be continued in Egypt. And Exodus is the continuation of what is going on in Egypt. So how does this family, here in the sequel now in Exodus, these 70 people, their family, enjoying the riches, enjoying the food, enjoying all of that in Egypt, how do they go from that to being slaves, to being oppressed, to being defeated now in Egypt in the most powerful nation in the world. Verse six, here's how it happened. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. Over. The generation that influenced gone. And now look at verse eight. A new king, a new pharaoh who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. So this new pharaoh, he doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't have any connections to him. He doesn't care about Joseph. The regime has changed. New cabinet, new staff, new leaders. He doesn't care about Joseph, who he is, what he did. He doesn't care about these immigrants who are now living in Egypt. In fact, he hates that there are so many immigrants in Egypt now. Look at verse 9. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. What a lie. They're a superpower. This group of slaves and immigrants are not more powerful than them, but he's insecure, just like all tyrants are. So what's his plan? Verse 10, come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Why? Otherwise, they'll multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. He's scared of all these immigrants. Even though being a superpower that rules the world, the greatest army, but he's worried. We don't have a good border. If we get invaded and the Israelites join up with those invaders, we're toast. So I have a plan. Put them in slave labor camps. Make them build storehouses and military bases for me. But you know what happens? God is at work. Beloved, this is the first thing we learn in the book of Exodus that we learn in Genesis, Exodus, from when God says, let there be light, to when God speaks in Exodus and to where God is now today in the universe. God is at work. Know that God is at work. So if if you remember Genesis, God makes these giant promises to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, changes his name to Israel, promises to give them a nation and, and more people than they could number in the stars. But then this devastating obituary line happens in verse six. Look at verse six again. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. This is meant to be like, uh-oh. 
how are we gonna, how are we gonna grow? How are we gonna receive these blessings? This would be like saying Correa, Bregman, Altuve, Springer, they're all out for the rest of the season. What are your hopes for a World Series championship now? None. Joseph and all his generations gone, we're toast. Harden, Paul, Capella, they're all hurt for the playoffs, we're toast. This is meant to signal this is a bad situation. No Joseph, no Jacob, no Abe, long dead. Now what? What on earth do the Israelites have going for them? God. God. Yahweh himself is who the Israelites have going for them. He is enough. God doesn't need Joseph alive to fulfill his promises. God doesn't need Jacob alive to fulfill his promises. God doesn't need you to fulfill his promises. He doesn't need me. God doesn't even need us alive to fulfill his promises to us. God is at work. They don't have any influence in Egypt. They don't have a famous Egyptian convert to Judaism to get influence. They don't have a Egyptian Tim Tebow now on their side. They have God and that's all they need. And for us, it's so tempting and just embarrassingly easy to look at the culture around us and how it's, it's failing and it's falling. And it's going all the way to the liberal side. But look, we, if you look at this passage, the more you read about Exodus and Egypt, we live in a modern day Egypt. Tons of technology, advancing, a superpower that's corrupt and scared of immigrants. But you know what we, we often think what we need to do is we need to influence the culture. We need a famous Christian and we need influence at the top and we can fix this. And actually the Bible says, no, we have God. And God's plan may be to let the USA tumble into oblivion all while the church flourishes. Would that be okay with you? Rather, it seems like some today would rather America flourish and the church be so-so. Whatever the process, we trust God knowing he's at work. Even though Joseph's and Jacob's and generations go, the Billy Graham generations and John Piper generations and Matt Chandler generations will all be gone. But God will continue the work of his glory and his name spreading across the earth like waters cover the sea. He will fulfill his promises. And we see it here. So the big names are gone, but guess what? Verse seven. But, so just because all these big names are gone, verse seven is meant to be the contrast. But look, it doesn't matter. The Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous. So the land was filled with them. When you, when you heard that and you read that, an alarm is meant to go off in your mind. I've heard that somewhere before. This is why Moses is saying, hey, remember, remember Genesis? Remember what God said in Genesis 1? God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Here they are. So if you write in your Bible, which I always recommend, you should write next to that in verse 7, Genesis 1, 28. It's happening. This is an echo of Genesis 1. They are fulfilling this call to be fruitful, to multiply, fill the earth, to subdue it. That's what, this, is, this is why Pharaoh was terrified. Because if 
there's this many of them, he is kind of right. They will rule. But I want to rule. So here they are growing. God fulfilling his promises to bless them, to multiply them. Here's what you need to know, beloved. God is going to fulfill his promises to you. He will always be faithful to you. And I'm not talking about some promises that we think God made to us at 2 a.m. holding a bag of Cheetos. I'm talking about the promises here. Promises here in his word. Promises to work all things together for your good. Things that we don't understand, things that we don't see. His promises to forgive you, to redeem you, to transform you. His promises to love you forever. His promise to bring you into his kingdom. His promise that you are secure in him. Don't throw in the towel. Don't shake your fist at God. Don't, don't doubt him when the things seem undesirable. This slavery here is undesirable. The cross is undesirable. And when we hear this book on the Lord's Day, and when you read it, and I hope you'll just read Exodus on your own and, and just kind of journey along. But when you read these stories, you hear about Moses, and you hear about Zipporah, and you hear about Aaron, and you, and you hear about Miriam, and you hear about the priests, and all of these things, don't think of them, oh, those are just Bible characters on some distant timeline. They don't really connect to my 21st century life. Wrong. These are your ancestors. This, if you are in Christ, this is your family history. Just at, at my parents last night, and you know, you open up a tin of photos and you're and you're looking at funny pictures and you're telling stories and remembering kind of what was happening at those times in, in your family. Friends, Exodus is a tin of family photos and stories. This is exactly what Paul wants us to know about the Exodus when he says in 1 Corinthians, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, he's talking to Gentile non-Jew Christians, your ancestors, yours, Redeemer Church, your ancestors were all under the cloud. This is in the actual Exodus. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses, being led by him. In the cloud, in the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. After photo, after photo, what does he say? They were struck down in the wilderness. Now, look, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. This is why Exodus is written, to teach you. Because what does he go on? He says, don't become idolaters as some of them were. The golden calf. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual morality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. That's in numbers. And don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. So you see, there is a practical connection to Exodus and your life now. These things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Exodus was written for you to teach us to not desire evil, but to follow Christ, to teach us to trust God, to follow him and to walk with him, to know that he really is at work. Then Pharaoh tries to stop the growth of the Israelites. Let's give them horrible work conditions. Let's oppress them. 
Horrible living condition. Let's be ruthless toward them. They won't multiply anymore. It'll be too difficult. They'll be too tired to want to multiply anymore. Verse 10, how does that plan work out for them? Let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they'll multiply further. Skip down to verse 12. They multiplied more. Moses does a little play on words here in Hebrew. It's, basically, it's almost the same word with one letter changed. Pharaoh, let's stop him from multiplying. And God says, eh, they multiplied. God is at work. No one can stop God's plans. No one, nothing can derail God's promises. And this is the second thing we learn. Oppression and obstacles don't derail God or his people. Oppression and obstacles don't derail God and his people. Pharaoh desperately wants to stop the Israelites from growing. He doesn't want to lose Egypt. He doesn't want to lose his workforce. So look at all the words Moses used to describe how horrible these conditions are. Verse 11, he oppresses them with forced labor, slave labor camps. Verse 13, he worked them ruthlessly. 14, made their lives bitter, horrible living conditions, food. He ruthlessly imposed the work on them, verse 14. But this didn't stop the power and promises of God. Undesirable conditions in life don't derail God's promises. Don't derail his power. Suffering, oppression, obstacles, sickness, they don't derail God's promises. This oppression that you're seeing right here, this is uncommon to us, 21st century Americans, but it's not uncommon to most of church history and it is not uncommon to most Christians in the world right now. This is true right now all around the world. God's people are being oppressed, ruthless treatment from governments, but it's not stopping the church. Do you know where the fastest growing church in the world is? It's not in Houston. It's not in the United States. It is actually in Iran. It's a picture of just a mass baptism in Iran. And Mark Howard writing at the Gospel Coalition says about the church in Iran, it's a simple story that can be summarized in just two sentences. Persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church. Instead, the church in Iran has become the fastest growing church in the world. And it's influencing the region for Christ. He goes on that the Iranian revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime. Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce. And several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure. Many feared the small Iranian church would soon wither away and die. But the exact opposite happened. Despite continued hostility from the late 1970s until now, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. How did this happen? He says two factors have contributed to this openness. First, violence in the name of Islam has caused widespread disillusionment with the regime and led many Iranians to question their beliefs. Second, many Iranian Christians have continued to boldly and faithfully tell others about Christ in the face of persecution. And as a result, listen, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries put together. 
more Iranians have become Christians in the last two decades than the last 1,300 years put together. And in 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians with a Muslim background in Iran. Today, some estimate more than a million. 500 to over a million. Whatever the exact number, many Iranians are turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And when Kevin and I were in Dubai, we met a man who, he manages a fund for, that has millions of dollars in it for ministry in Iran. Underground radio, underground television, satellite publications, books. And he was telling us stories about how Muslims were saying they're having dreams about a man dressed in white, the beard, and he's Jewish looking and telling them stories. And they would tell them, this is Jesus. And they tell them about Jesus and they're getting saved. And he met with another guy who says he's been having dream after dream of this guy teaching and events happening around this guy. And he said, they're so vivid. The dreams are just so, just so like memorable. I've been able to write them down in a journal. And this is what I've been dreaming. And the guy takes the journal and he says, this is basically the gospel of John. A man in Iran dreaming the gospel of John when the gospel's illegal. Oppression will not derail God's plans or his promises for his name to spread all over this earth and to redeem for himself people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. Nothing can derail the people of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. But I wonder, what would oppression do to your trust in God? What, what would an actual obstacle do to your commitment to Christ? We have no obstacles. None. And sadly, one of the greatest obstacles in the Bible Belt for people gathering on Sunday morning is rain. And it's pathetic. Or it's hunting season. Or it's kids' sports. Or I'm just tired. And then people flake out on the people of God and God himself. What will actually happen when it costs you something to follow Jesus? Maybe it's cost us a few friends, and, but Christianity in the Bible, Belt, it's socially acceptable. It costs people something to not be Christians in the Bible, Belt. but the day is coming when it will cost you something more than 10% of a tithe if you even do that. I believe, beloved, in my lifetime, in our lifetime, we will face more oppression and more obstacles from the government and from the culture. World history and church history tell us it will happen. It happened in Rome. It happened throughout the Roman Empire. It happens in England. It's happening in New England. And it will happen here too. Because as the Bible says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. What rulers and authorities? Against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. The reason we will face oppression and obstacles is because there is an ancient power against you. He was against the people of God in Egypt and he's against the people of God now. Look at how Pharaoh describes himself. 
How Pharaoh describes his dealings. Verse 10, look. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. That word shrewdly is also meant to make another alarm go off in your mind. Huh, I've heard that somewhere before. This kind of talk, it echoes back to Genesis 3 where God says the serpent was the most cunning, shrewd, as the Jewish Publication Society translates Genesis 3.1. The serpent was more shrewd than all the beasts, all the wild animals that the Lord God had made and said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Crafty, cunning, shrewd. You know what Moses is showing us here in Exodus 1.10? He's connecting it back to Genesis 3.1. We've already heard echoes of, Exodus, of Genesis 1 and Exodus 1. Now we're hearing echoes of Genesis 3 and Exodus 1. Moses is saying, Pharaoh isn't just some insecure tyrant. Pharaoh is reptilian. Pharaoh is controlled by the serpent. Pharaoh is the offspring of the serpent. When Adam and Eve believed the serpent and ate that fruit, and we all fall into sin. God makes a promise to the serpent. And he tells him, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring, the people who follow you, the people who act like you, like Pharaoh, and her offspring. And this offspring to come who will be born of the woman, he will strike your head and you'll strike his heel. Great. You'll, you'll injure him, but he will kill you in the process. And this verse right here is the thread of the whole scripture. This is the mega theme of the Bible. This battle between the son of God, the seed of the woman, the son of man, and the serpent, Satan himself. Every book trends toward this fulfillment. Exodus is the battle of the serpent versus the promised Messiah, the one who will crush his head which is why what we'll see next week, what does Pharaoh want to do? He wants to kill all the Israelite male children. Get them out of here. It's the serpent. I don't want the seed to come and attack me. What does Herod do? Kill all the male babies in Bethlehem. Get them all out of here. I don't want the seed of the woman to come and attack me. The serpent is fighting. Exodus isn't just a battle between Moses and Pharaoh are two nations, Israel and Egypt for freedom. This is a cosmic battle. And so is your life. Your life is a cosmic battle. Satan doesn't want to just make you think God is lame and sin is more fun. Satan and the cosmic forces whirling in the air around us want you to think God actually isn't worth trusting. And he wants you to trust in himself. Satan doesn't want you to disbelieve in God and believe in him. He wants you to disbelieve in God and believe in yourself. And his selling point to, to us, to them, is oppression and obstacles. Don't trust God. What was his selling point to Jesus when he tempted him for 40 days in the wilderness? Don't go to the cross. I'll, I'll give you kingdoms now. Don't trust the father to give you an inheritance. I'll give you kingdoms now. You just bow down to me. He tempts you and I the same way, just like he did Adam and Eve. Don't trust what, you don't have to do what the Bible says. It's fine. Just do what you want. God is love. He wants to tempt you and re-enslave you with sin. 
Are you still oppressed and enslaved by sin and the serpent? Did you come in here today trying to hide shackles around your ankles and wrists? There's hope for us all because the seed of the woman promised Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem, lived a sinless life, and he did die on a real Roman cross for our sins to deliver us from Satan and death. And yes, the serpent got his heel, but he, Jesus, crushed his head. And the Bible says that Jesus rose again from the dead and he reigns in the heavens as the king of the universe with a name greater than every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And King Jesus, unlike this Pharaoh in Exodus 1, King Jesus, he knows Joseph. He knows Jacob. He knows Abraham. And Abraham rejoiced to see his day, actually. And this king, this king Jesus, knows the promises of God because all the promises of God find their yes in him. And this king, unlike this Pharaoh, he knows you. And he loves you. And instead of weighing oppression and heavy burdens and ruthless treatment on you, he gave himself for you. Instead of demanding that everyone bow down to him in fear, he goes to the cross and takes our sin. He died for you and rose for you. And he's a gracious king that leads us out of oppression and leads us out of the ruthless treatment from our sins because Jesus entered into our oppression. Jesus overcame our oppression and the obstacles of sin, Satan, and death because he took them on himself. He says, I will take the yoke of your sin, the yoke of your oppression, those heavy burdens, and I'll put them on me and I'll give you my grace. I'll give you my righteousness. Take my yoke. It's easy. My burden is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart. I am not an oppressive king. I do not treat my people ruthlessly. Trade with me. Come, let's reason together, says the Lord. Come buy wine and milk without price. Come buy rich food, you who have no money. I'll take your sin. I'll take your oppression. You can have my righteousness. And all you must do is believe. Trust in his work and you'll be redeemed. The people of God, we will continue to face oppression and obstacles. But what does Jesus say? Take heart. I have overcome the world. What can separate you from the love of God? Shall peril, nakedness, famine, sword, oppressive governments, illegal gospel presentations? No. In all these things, you are more than conquerors. For him who loved you. Exodus is a battle between the serpent and the son of God. And your life is right in the heat of battle. Pick your side. Which is what you hear Joshua say after Moses departs from the scene. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Will, we, will you follow the way of the serpent, the world, or the way of the seed of the woman, the way of the son. And this is no make-believe infinity war on the big screen. This is right here, right now.
who will you follow? Know that God, you can trust him and nothing can stand in his way. The risen Christ is the proof. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.